All right, saints, if you would open your Bibles to the epistle of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, and this morning we're going to look at verse 3, and of course we're going to just tug, tug on verse 4 as well, just because it kind of brings it into its you know, context, but our, our scripture is verse 3, and it simply declares this. Peter declares, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, does not fade, fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It's a beautiful thing that Peter here, in verse 1, it simply opens up Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter is declaring in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you have to understand that he's not just saying intellectually, God deserves glory. God deserves worship. God deserves to be praised. Peter, I think, is like putting his pen down and saying, blessed, blessed be. You understand, he's, he's at this point of grasping something, and he's not just saying intellectually blessed be, but, but his heart is moving, blessed be. And I think there, there's something to be understood as far as what it really means to worship. Because you can take these words and you can try to make it an intellectual exercise, or you can take these words and you can allow those words to be, be moved from your head down to your heart, and then simply when, when your heart begins to experience, it becomes a worship. Now, that's sometimes the danger of morning devotions. We're tired, and so I'm going to simply read it, and I read it. Okay, I got some of it. I didn't get some of it, but it was an intellectual thing. Rather than sitting down and really experiencing God, Peter is the one who's writing blessed be. And I think as he's writing this, keep in mind who it is and what he's experienced that is writing this worship, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. He's talking in this passage how great God is, how worthy of praise and worship he is, that according to God's abundant mercy, not just mercy, but abundant mercy. Now, Peter here, I'll be honest with you, he knows what abundant mercy is. He knows that it's just not this little mercy, it's abundant mercy. And then he says, who's begotten us again? And, and, and he's begotten us again to a living hope. And, and he's begotten us again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this inheritance, this life with him will never fade away. Peter is saying this because I think Peter has experienced how the anchoring of his salvation through the finished work of Jesus Christ, that he couldn't botch it. He couldn't mess it up. I don't know if there was ever a passage in the scripture that Peter could say, Lord, please don't put chapter 26 of Matthew in the Bible. Because Matthew 26 of the Bible really doesn't do Peter a lot of justice. It's interesting that the last three incidences of Peter with Jesus Christ prior to his resurrection, are actually found in Matthew 26. Now, within these incidences, you and I would say, Lowell, you are very kind to call them incidences. Some of us would call them disasters. Some of us would call them failures. And the Lord just calls it, it's an incident. It's just something that happened. But don't worry about what happened, because Peter, I've still anchored you. Your salvation is still mine. I'm the one that did this. I'm the one who's begotten you again. And, and nothing that you can do in chapter 26 is going to alleviate 
what the angels are going to declare in Mark 16. And that's a beautiful thing. So keep in mind that in Matthew chapter 26, this beautiful passage, what Matthew begins to do is this. The three incidences that I'm referring to is the first is found in verses 37 through 45, where the Lord tells Peter, Peter, stay awake, pray with me, minister to me. My, my, my soul is, is just exceedingly sorrowful. Could you stay awake? And he has to go wake up Peter. And after he wakes up Peter, he says, can you just stay awake and pray with me? And then he has to go and wake up Peter again. It's amazing that here, Peter, when, when the Lord is saying, can, can, you, can you watch and pray, that Peter like, eh, probably not. Desiring to, not being able to fulfill it. And then directly after that, he wakes up. <laughs> Praise God for that. He wakes up, and the first thing he does is he slices off the ear of Melchus, the servant of the high priest. And what does Peter, Jesus, do? oh, hang on a second there, Peter. Picks it up, sticks it back on Malchus. It's okay, put your sword away. And then the third event that Peter does is he denies the Lord three times. I want to actually look through these events before we start into our passage because I think they're, they speak volumes to us. So beginning in Matthew 26, verse 37, and I'm going to read all the way down to verse 45, then we'll jump over down to verse 50. But beginning verse 37, he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Notice how Matthew puts this out. He doesn't say he takes Peter, James, and John. He doesn't name James and John. He takes Peter, names Peter by name, oh, and the two sons of Zebedee. Now, I have no idea if John had gotten to Matthew, was writing, and said, Matthew, I started reading, your, I proofread it, change James and John to the two sons of Zebedee. It's still truth, but it just alleviates my name. But he doesn't do that. He says Peter very clearly, and then he says the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful, deeply distressed. And he said to them, the three, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death, stay here. And watch with me. And he went a little further. He fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to, not Peter, the two sons of Zebedee. Do you understand how Matthew is really pinpointing this chapter to really include one thing? Peter's last three incidences with the Lord prior to his resurrection. So it's funny, he doesn't say to Peter, James, and John, note what Matthew is declaring. He comes now, and, and it's so amazing that he, he, he comes to the disciples, the, there in verse 40, he found them, plural, sleeping, and he said to Peter, just, just Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? It's not even been 60 minutes, Peter. Couldn't you just be praying with me 60 minutes? And he says, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So he's saying, Peter, your watching with me is just not beneficial to me, but it's beneficial to you. And again, a second time, verse 42, he went away and he prayed, saying, oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. He came and he found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy. And he left them, went away, and he prayed a third time, saying the same words. And he came to the disciples and he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is come and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going to see my betrayers at hand. The very first incidence is, Peter not being able to watch and pray. Now, now, Peter here is thinking, oh my goodness, this last three events that I ever had with Jesus was the first is watch and pray and me nodding off, waking up. Peter, watch and pray, me nodding off again. And then he comes and sees me sleep. He doesn't even bother waking me up a third time. Then he eventually says, get up, my betrayer's at hand. And so what happens is there in verse um, 50, when Judas comes and he kisses him, 
Jesus says to Judas, friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. So Jesus is saying to Judas, friend, why have you come? They're grabbing a hold of Jesus. Verse 51, and suddenly one of those who were with Jesus, John's gospel, you know, lets us know it's Peter. One of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew a sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. (laughs) Peter slices off his ear. The Gospels tell us that what he does is he, as he slices off the ear, that he says it's the right ear uniquely. And then Jesus tells him, he tells Peter, he says, put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I can now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? So then how could the scriptures be fulfilled? that it must happen thus. So as Peter wakes up from his debacle of sleeping, he wakes up to another debacle of slicing off the high priest, of the, the, the servant of the high priest ear. And Jesus does what? Well, he just let Peter sleep the first time, and now he grabs the ear, he sticks it back on Malchus and, and heals him. Tells Peter, put away your sword. That was the second time. And, and just in case you thought, oh, man, after that, I'm glad it ended. It gets worse for Peter because in verse 69, Peter sat outside the courtyard and the servant girl came to him saying, you also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth, but after he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, surely you also are one of them for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed and Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to them, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. These are the events. These are the incidences that Peter here lived with when, when Christ was being crucified. But beautifully there on a Sunday morning, when the angels were talking to the women who came, they would say this in Mark's gospel, chapter 16, verse 7, that this message came to the angels from God, and the angels are now repeating it to the women. And Mark's gospel records it in chapter 16, verse 7, but go tell his disciples and Peter. See, in case Peter thought, well, maybe that means I'm not his disciple anymore, but tell me, I don't think so. Peter, I want you to know you're still one of the disciples. You're still one of those that are called. None of it's changed. And I can tell you that none of it's changed because what happens is this. It hasn't been changed because we see that there in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, that when Peter comes and is there before the Lord three times, three times, Jesus goes to Peter, Peter are you mine? Do you love me? And so three times the Lord gives Peter a chance to confess him. And each time what the Lord does is this. He said, okay, I want you to minister to my, in other words, feed my lambs, tend to my sheep, feed my sheep. They're not yours, Peter. They will never be yours, but you are mine, And I want you to minister to me in this way. Minister for me in this way. And as you minister to them, you're going to be ministering to me. And I think it's so important to realize that Peter here, as he has this incredible bad night. 
he comes to the point of realizing through the angel speaking in Mark's gospel, Jesus coming and restoring him in John's gospel, my salvation has been anchored in the work of Jesus Christ. And, and Peter recognizes that no matter what he did, that he could not nullify it, he could not negate it, he could not change it. Because it was there, it's undefiled. It, you, you can't simply just say, it, it, it isn't there anymore. God says it's anchored. And Peter realizes, listen, saints... Your salvation, no matter what happens, if you have a bad day or a bad night or a bad month or a bad year, when you stumble, realize this, that the Lord has done the work. And so he makes this statement to them, blessed be the God. Blessed be the God who has begotten us again to this living hope. It's, it's, just, it's this confident, firm expectation that will never, ever, that is uncorruptible and defiled and does not fade away and reserved in heaven, the relationship we have with God. No wonder Peter goes, blessed be. Do you understand it's not an intellectual discussion he's having? It's an emotional epiphany that he's sharing now, what happens is this, when it comes to this blessed be, I think what happens when our minds become aware of this incomprehensible greatness and the unmeasurable majesty that is God. And we become just, just slightly aware of it and we realize of him and his greatness and his wonder and, and we, we look to to God with an unfiltered admiration and gratitude and a celebration, and then we want to express it. When you become aware of God, and, and I don't know what happens, there are maybe times where you do like, like I did early on in my Christianity when I'm worshiping, and all of a sudden something just registers. And it registers not just reading it on the screen, but my heart now is like, oh, I get it, I get it. And I'm in awe, and I'm a wonder, I'm celebrating. And my worship changes from simply reading words and putting music to them to a celebration of my heart, to an exaltation of God and who he is and how he's working. This is the beauty of what worship is. And this is here why Peter, in verse 3, says, blessed be. Do you understand? He doesn't just say, oh, you know, we're, we're the elect according to the foreknowledge, and, and, and God has come, and, and, you know, according to his abundant mercy, he's begotten us again. He doesn't. He prefaces all that data with blessed be. Celebrate God, worship God, exalt God for what these things, don't just get them in your head, move them down to your heart. Make this understanding an expression of awe and wonder and gratitude of your heart. And when you do that, then you come to the point and say, oh, blessed be and it's not just words that you speak. It's, it's the, the, the moving of your heart, the agreeing of your soul, of the absolute majesty and, and glory that is God's and God's alone. And that's why Peter comes and says, oh, blessed be. You go on in the fourth chapter, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. And he'll make this statement as well. And, and I love what Peter does. He says, if anyone speaks... Let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability that God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. You understand, he says, if somebody speaks, speak as the oracles. If anyone ministers, well, let him do it with the ability that God supplies. The, the words that you say, the deeds that you do. Speak the words, do the deeds but do it in a way that God is glorified. Do it in a way that God is exalted, that his name is declared, his heart is known, and, and he's worshipped. 
See, I love the fact that when we come in here, we just don't come and we worship in song or sing a song, but we come to his word. And again, this word should cause us to be in awe of who this God is. And understand how clearly Peter declares this in chapter 4, verse 11. If anyone speaks, let him speak. If anyone ministers, let him do it. That in all things, do you realize what he's saying? That in everything you do for God, everything you're doing to God, in all things, God may be glorified. And he's, he's not just saying, glorify God in this. This is Peter. Peter, who's worshiping God and abandoned because he realized that if, if, if I was there in Matthew 26 and I would have been the one, I would think, I'm doomed. I, I would have needed the angels to say, tell the disciples and Lowell, you mean there's hope? Oh, not only is there hope, the Lord would say to Peter, there's never been a doubt in my mind, God would say. There's never been a moment where you haven't been my son. Do you understand, Peter? From the foundation of the world, you've been mine. Nothing you did, nothing you do will ever negate that. It, it won't contradict that. It can't cancel my work. Why? Because the salvation that Peter had wasn't his work. It never was. And he realized the salvation I have came from the, the, the death the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that anchors that truth into this living hope that I express. And all of it was, was because of God's abundant mercy. He recognizes that. He declares that. He worships that. And then in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 11, as he begins to conclude all the things, he says, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do you understand that with everything you might have thought about Peter, with everything you might think about you that is in the negative, this is Peter now. Do you understand that he who has begun a good work in you is faithful to complete it? See, this is not the Peter of Matthew 26. This is a Peter who has been worked on. This is a Peter who has been forgiven. This is a Peter who has seen God in his glory, who understands what the resurrection of Jesus Christ meant to him. As the angels would say, tell the disciples and Peter, Jesus would say, Peter, do you love me? I want you to minister to all those things that are mine. And what a beautiful thing here that Peter begins to gravitate to, to realize it's almost as if Peter here on earth, because of his receiving what Jesus Christ has done through his death, burial, and resurrection, Peter being forgiven, having it confirmed through the voice of angels and the words of Jesus Christ himself, it's almost like Peter here on earth is experiencing what John himself experienced in heaven. Remember that passage there in the book of Revelation? I want to read to you just two verses. The first is Revelation 4.11. seems like everything's verse 11 here. But it says this in Revelation 4.11. It says, as, as the, the um, living creatures are glorifying God, they say, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. You've done it all. In other words, we haven't done anything. You created us, and we blew it. We botched it. We failed. And it doesn't make a difference because you purchased us before the foundation of the world. Before we were ever born, it was done. Jesus was crucified then before the foundation, so, so he just actually went through the physical shedding of the blood there 2,000 years ago. Jesus said it was finished, and we weren't even born yet. How amazing is that? Our salvation was anchored in his work, not in ours. And if it was anchored in his work, if it was done through the, the, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we can't negate Jesus saying it's done. Jesus didn't say, I did my part, now you guys must do yours. 
There, there's nothing that's left up to me, nothing. And so the Spirit touches our hearts. We believe in the finished work. We accept his work. We receive his work in our stead, and he becomes our Lord and our Savior. We become his children. We have an inheritance. It's absolutely incredible that we see here how in heaven God was so worthy of worship that that's just all that happens because, God, you've done it all. We want to worship you. And in chapter 5, this is not actually verse 11. This is actually verse 12, first time it changes here. I don't know why the translators didn't make 11 longer because it would have been perfect for my message today, but they didn't. So in Revelation chapter 5, verse 12, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom, strength and honor and glory and blessing. Oh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the Lamb who's accomplished all this. You understand the worship that is going on, dealing with God, you've done it, you've done it, you've done it. To the Lamb, you've done it, you've done it, to done it. And as Peter notes here in chapter 1, verse 3 of his epistle, you've done it. So he's like, blessed be. And anyone who at this point isn't excited with me, I can't help you anymore. I, I honestly can't because this is, is so huge. It's so enormous. Your heart should be saying, can we just give an amen? Can we say praise God? Blessed be. Notice what Peter's saying. Blessed be. Oh, glory. Glory to God. So you think that he's writing this down, he's dancing, whoa, you know, get it down, don't, you know, be blessed, yeah, yeah, Al, blessed, just like cheerleaders, give me a B, yeah. You notice what he's doing, he's glorifying God, he's exalting God, blessed be. And amazingly, when he's worshiping, why should we worship God to this point of abandon and awe, noting his, his immeasurable majesty, just, just trying to grasp a hold of his incomprehensible greatness of everything that he has done that has finished our salvation. I can't mess it up. And you know what that caused me? Oh, God. I worship you. When I fail so miserably, it's now I worship you. I'm so thankful for you and what you've done through your son, Jesus Christ, his death on the cross. And now amazingly, what he does is this. He gives five reasons that we should be so excited about God. The first thing he talks about is, is one thing is understanding God's mercy, and he calls it abundant mercy. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy. That's the first intellectual reason why, why our heart should be moved to this point of worship, understanding it's according to because of God's abundant mercy. Not, not because of, oh, we've been so good, it had nothing to do with me. Peter knows nothing to do with me. In case you're doubting that, read Matthew 26. It's not me. It's God who did the work. And no matter what I did, failure after a worse failure, after a terrible, even worse failure, he still loved me. I was still his. And he was still going to use me to bring him further glory in his kingdom. Doesn't that amaze you? You, you think, Peter, you, you should have not been called. Not at this point. Look at your testimony. God said, oh, no, 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 no. You are going to be the pillar. You're going to be one of the leaders there in the church. Why? Because you will have experienced grace to the point where that will help you. Give grace and minister grace and declare the grace. You understand my mercy and you understand how abundant this mercy is. And so the first thing is going to talk about his abundant mercy. The second thing is, is that we see here 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, he says, who, according to his abundant mercy, has, notice this, begotten us again. It's who has begotten us again? Who has given us this new life? Who has given us this new birth? It's, it's blessed be God, according to his abundant mercy, who has given us this brand new life? And we celebrate God. We worship God. We celebrate him. And so we see this beautiful picture. The first thing is look to his abundant mercy, but then look to this work who has begotten us again, who has given us this new life. He doesn't count your old life. He's given you a brand new one. So keep in mind that this old life, the life that we're living now, he says, it's, you're going to consider this what? It's all dead. It's all done. It's all gone. And I'm giving you a brand new life, a new lease on life. It's not the old things that you've done. It's what I've done, which makes everything new. And so we see that he's begotten us again. And then the third thing that he says, to a living hope, not just to a hope, but a living hope, a continual hope, a hope that actually allows power in my life to be transformed. It's a living hope. And then in case that wasn't enough, we realize that all this that he's been doing that brings glory to God is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That when Jesus goes from death into the power of resurrected life, we who are in the flesh, we who are in Christ, we actually get to receive in our physical bodies, the spiritual, manifestation, the spiritual manifestation, everything that Jesus went through physically. So as he died physically, as we are in him, we died, in a sense, spiritually. As he was raised physically, we also, through that spiritual sense, we realize, I've been raised with Christ. I'm a new creation. I'm a new creation. I'm a new creature. This is what I've done. And then the fifth thing is, to this inheritance, oh my goodness, blow your mind, to this inheritance that is so beautiful, it's incorruptible, undefiled, does not fade away. So let's look at these five events that should cause us to be in awe and wonder and celebration. The first is it's according to your abundant mercy. Well, what does it mean to be according to your abundant mercy? Well, I want to read to you a passage in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. And it simply makes this statement. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. As the author of Hebrews is coming to this point, opening up, you know, just his heart and really showing how the Lord is just so much more, he says this. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you understand? You, you come to this throne of grace. The, the, the throne is, is allowing us that access that we may obtain mercy, not getting what we deserve. Now, I don't know about you, but what, what Peter has done in, in Matthew 26 I could put my name there. There's, there's all kinds of things that I screwed up that I thought, could I really be forgiven of this? And God says, yes. Because what happens is come boldly to this throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. You, you, you get this mercy. You, you get this not getting what you deserve with God when you come to this throne that we should never have had access. Now, remember... The only way that you could have access to God in the Old Testament was, was one, to be a high priest, two, to offer an ox for yourself, and then only one time a year after you offered that ox could you come in into this holy of holies with this, this incense offering, smoke between you and God. You can peer in there, put blood on the altar, and then you leave. That's it. That's the only presence you could have experiencing God. And now in Hebrews, no, it's been the veil is rent, torn in two. Come boldly to this throne of grace. Come boldly to that Shekinah of, of God, the glory of God, that manifestation of his glory. Come in there that we may obtain, receive, hold on to, anchor in mercy. 
And I love the heart of that. Because so often what God does is, you know, like in Micah, he has shown the old man, right? What has God shown you? And it's amazing the things that he shows us is this. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Why is mercy so important? What, what is this about this, this abundant mercy? Why is it that he doesn't talk about the grace, the grace, the grace? Why is it he says mercy? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't. But mercy is not getting what you do. Understand, so often the enemy does what? He doesn't tell you all the good things that God has for you that you don't deserve. He says all the reasons you shouldn't get it. That's why mercy is so important. What's unique is we've been looking at the book of Matthew. And in the book of Matthew, there are three instances in which Jesus talks of mercy. The first one is actually found in Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, what Jesus declares is this. He's speaking, you know, to these scribes and Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Jesus says, God is the one who says, go learn what this means. I desire mercy. Now, not sacrifice. And understand, Jesus points out only those two things, the doing for God or just mercy expressing mercy, living in mercy, having that mercy. And I find it so amazing that this is how the Lord begins to really anchor us into why does Jesus not talk about the grace? He talks about mercy. In Matthew chapter 12, you go on in verse 7. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. What does it mean? If you understood what this means, God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You also, what? I think it's important that we also do justly love mercy, walk humbly with our God. And Jesus said, if you had understood this, if you've known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. What does it mean? How many people do you think would come up to Peter after Matthew chapter 26 and say, you are horrible. Boy, have you blown it. Do you know that there was this tradition. It wasn't in the Bible, so I don't know. In fact, it, it is true, but there was a tradition that when people would see Peter, that they would crow like a rooster. That would slay my heart every single time. Could you imagine every time people saw you, they'd point out your sin and point out your sin, and people just began to do that. Crow like a rooster. When you see Peter, crow like a rooster. Can you imagine Peter's heart? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Failure, failure, failure. Every time that happens, the failure, the failure. And yet, he can say, you know what? That was nothing. Because what Jesus said is, if you would have known what this means, I desire mercy. In other words, you love mercy. Love to give mercy to people that don't deserve mercy. See, we always want what? Justice, justice. And God says mercy. Because if you give mercy, what's happening is this. You're not condemning the guiltless. Why? Because God's grace has forgiven them their sin. And mercy saying you don't have to receive condemnation. You can receive exaltation. That God lifts you up and says you're mine. You're mine. You are my inheritance. We'll be looking at that in just a moment. He says, you're mine. You have been born again. You've been begotten again. And I love the heart of what God begins to do. And then lastly, one more passage in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 23, the Lord does similar in, in, in verse 23. 
He says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe and mint and anise and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. It's amazing why he talks about justice, mercy, and faith. What justice is, is this. So often I'm thinking what justice is for your sin and your failures or what you've done against me. But what justice should really be is what the penalty of my sin should be. My failure should be. This is the key. And as we look to that key, we understand, God, now I understand justice is how I look at them. Justice is how you should look at me. And then I go to mercy, how you're not looking at me, how I shouldn't be looking at them because you've made them guiltless. To their own master, they will stand or fall, and he's able to make them stand. And as we recognize this, and then it's faith. It's faith what? It's believing that, God, what you've done to me, you've also done to them. And how beautiful is this mercy that Jesus begins to speak of and how Peter begins to recollect. He says, it's an abundant mercy. Oh my goodness, it's an abundant mercy. And when you look at Matthew 26 and you realize all these things that have been put upon Peter's heart, weighing it down, putting upon his spirit, weighing him down, and all of a sudden we see what? He experiences this grace of God, the mercy of God, not getting what he deserved. God saying, tell the disciples and Peter, Jesus saying, Peter, do you love me? I want you to minister to these things that are mine. I love what Peter is beginning to do when he recognizes the first thing of why we are in awe and celebrate and worship God is you haven't given me what I deserve. Oh, Lord, that should have been first. I should have not been able to come and receive. I should have been a pile of ashes. Sodom and Gomorrah should have been poured out upon my head. I should have just God's judgment upon me. And yet he took the judgment that was for me. He placed it upon his son. Everything that should have been mine, he put a place upon his son. Jesus paid for it all, and there's nothing left to pay for God looks at me as absolutely righteous, the righteousness of God that Jesus said, I'll take your sins, I'll give you my righteousness. What a swap. And so this mercy, not getting what I deserve, this is what Paul does first and foremost. He says, this is the key. This is what's going on. I want you to understand first and foremost the celebration of God, his abundant mercy. The second thing is who has begotten us again. I love the aspect of that. Who has begotten us again? In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, we covered it on Wednesday night. I want to focus on a little bit here this morning. But it says this, who have been born again. You have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God. Do you understand? You have been born again, not of a word that can be ended or changed or manipulated or no longer powerful, you've been born again by a word that is incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. When his word declares what we are righteous before God, there's nothing that can now take that away because his word declared it. Do you understand? God declares you and me righteous. And if his word declares us righteous, as we were looking here in that psalm reading we had this morning, where it simply declared this, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. When in heaven you say, we have been born again, begotten again, we have a new life in Christ, that word is settled and nothing can take that word away. Nothing that I do, nothing that you do, it's settled in heaven. And so here he's, oh my goodness, we've been born again. We have been begotten again. We have a brand new life. 
this life that we have, it's almost as if, you know, Peter with that same mind that the Spirit gave to Paul when he wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. As Paul would write there in Romans chapter 6, Beginning in verse 3 and 4, he says, Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We went down the water into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of this life. That this resurrected life, this new life that I have, isn't my old life of death. It's a new life of power, resurrection power. And how amazing is this that it's almost as if when, when Peter is talking about this being begotten again or born again, it's almost as if he, in his mind, is going all the way back there to the Gospel of John chapter 3, where there was a man by the name of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus would come to the Lord there in the cool of the evening. And it opens up this in John 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know if Nicodemus said, How do you see the kingdom of God? He didn't even ask the question. He went and made a statement. We know that you are a teacher. Come from God, because no one can do the things that you do unless God is with them. And so Jesus is like, Let me teach you something. Because you must understand by now that I'm a teacher come from God because no one could do these things unless God are with him. So let me teach you something. And he says to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You got to have a new life. And so Nicodemus here scratches his yarmulke, verse 4, and he said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? You don't. It's not that natural birth again. Verse 5, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water, the natural birth, and the spirit, the second birth, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of the flesh, the water, the natural birth, is flesh. That which is born of the spirit, the second birth, is spirit. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. So we begin to see here this incredible work that God is doing. And then in verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, Are you a teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? You should know this. You should know that God is promising you new life. It's a brand new life. It's not the old life that you have. And I think it's important for us to grasp what Peter is finding himself in awe and wonder. He says, Oh my goodness, worship God, one, because of his abundant mercy. Be overwhelmed by it and then grasp inside your heart that you have a brand new life. Do you realize that everything old is passed away? Everything new is now and enjoy this life, relish in this life, walk in this life. And he says that you've been born again, begotten again into a living hope. The third thing, this living hope. Now, understand that hope isn't a wishful thinking. It isn't like um, I have a desire for some future outcome or desire for some future item that I'm hoping, yet I'm not sure that it's going to happen. That's not the hope that is a Christian. In other words, there are a lot of people in Wisconsin that hope that the Packers win. They're hoping, yet they're not sure. They're, they're, they're hoping, but the outcome is uncertain. That's not the hope that we're looking for. The hope in the scripture is a confident expectation, a firm assurance. In other words, you're unmistakable. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, it says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Put your hope fully on, your confident expectation. Now, what he's saying is, 
don't hope that you might have this grace. No, no, just, just anchor it in. In verse 13, he's anchor in on this hope. Anchor in fully on this hope upon the grace that is brought to you at what you have now been able to understand and receive and been revealed to you the revelation of Jesus Christ by the Spirit and by his word. It's a living hope. And, and I think this hope is so, so powerful. There's a passage I want you to be aware of found in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. The key is verse 12. It says this, Ephesians 2, 12, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, you were, you were not of Israel. You weren't grafted in. You were without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of the promises, having no hope. There, you had nothing. You had nothing that Israel had. You were nothing. You had no hope. You were without God in the world. You were separated. You were afar off. And then it says in verse 3, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now your family, you've been adopted into this glorious family of God. This is what he says. And so through that, where he talked about there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of those who have fallen asleep, lest you what? Sorrow as those who have no hope. We have this confidence, firm assurance that when a Christian sleeps, he wakes up with God. See, the world, they just die. And the New Testament taught Christian, oh, hey, he went to sleep. <laughs> he just went to sleep. His life isn't ended. It's not just death. He slept. And so we see here, this is the hope. This is the hope that we have. And the hope isn't this, this oh, I, I kind of hope that it's true. I, 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 I wishful thinking that it's true. No, understand, this hope is confident expectation firm assurance. And then he talks about this is now through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That his, his, his confidence becomes what? Not just that Jesus died for our sins. Because you could always say, well, the death of Jesus, he died for our sins. Well, it's easy to say that he did, but where's the evidence? Now, I love how God never usually just gives us one example. There was a man who was a paralytic. He had four friends, and they brought him to Jesus. Now, my thought is they brought him to Jesus because he was a paralytic, and they were wanting God to heal him so that he could walk. And there was a throng of people in front of the door. And so what these four friends did, they climbed up on the roof, ripped open the roof, dropped his friends down, his friend down through the roof, down to Jesus. Jesus looked at the faith of the four men, not, not the guy laying down under the thing, the faith of the four men and said, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, that blew the minds of the, the Pharisees and the, the leaders that were in there. Who can forgive sin but God? And Jesus said, just so you know, just so you know, the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk. Now, you can say your sins are forgiven and you don't need any evidences. Is there really proof? You can say something, but it's nice to have proof to back it up. You know, it's one of those things that if I said, okay, you guys are in luck today because God has put it upon my heart to write a check for $1 million to each of you out of my account. And you would say, wow, lol, that's, that's nice of you, until you saw my account. And then you realize you're going to have a lot of bounced checks. You might say, I'm going to write you a check for $1 out of my account, but for, now if you have Donald Trump. He said, you guys are in luck. Today, I'm going to write you a check for $1 million out of my account. You're thinking, odds are good. It's going to cash. Do you understand how there's something that can anchor in? You want some kind of evidences. And Jesus said, if you want evidence 
that I can do and forgive sin, then look at this. Take up your bed and walk. And the man takes up his bed and walk. Now, when he does that kind of power in the physical, he's saying this is proof of my kind of power in the spiritual. So how do you know that Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, was the forgiveness of all sin, was the payment of the penalty of the wrath of God that was due for you and me? Because God says, I will raise up the sacrifice and accept it. I'm going to bring Jesus from the dead. And so by him rising from the dead, it's the evidence that his death was the forgiveness of all sin. You don't have to question it anymore. This is that beautiful thing about God. So we see here, it was the resurrection from the dead. And this resurrection from the dead, what he begins to do is this. In 1 Peter chapter 1, if you scroll down to verse 23 and you look over to verse 25, the last part of it, it makes this statement. Verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. The word of God, the prophets would always declare, God, you're going to deal with the sins of men. You are going to be the redeemer. How does that work? Until God came in the flesh, went to the cross for our sins, paid the penalty. He redeemed us with blood, his own blood. And the word of God made that statement, this word of God that will never, ever pass away because it, it, it isn't corruptible. It isn't perishable. It isn't going to end. And then in verse 25, in the second half of the verses, now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Do you understand the good news is what? Jesus died for your sins. You can now have eternal life through believing in him. How incredible is this? So as we see here, I want you to understand this is all through this, this glorious celebration of God is, yes, look to his abundant mercy. Second, look to we have been born again. We're new creations, not, not old. It's not what I did, but I, all that was done and gone when I died with Christ, and now I've been raised with him. I'm a new creation, this living hope that is a power so this hope that can now transform me, it's a living hope, not just a hope, a stagnant hope or a dead hope. It's a living hope that constantly transforms my thinking and my mind, and it comes alive in my heart again and again. This is all declared through the gospel, through this word of God. And I find it a blessing that here, the last thing is this, that causes Peter to just celebrate, blessed be God. In verse 5, he says, who are kept, or wait, verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. The interesting thing is this, is Peter doesn't tell you what that inheritance is. He just tells you what it's not. And <laughs> Like, come on, Peter, I'm celebrating that this inheritance isn't corruptible. I'm celebrating that is undefiled and it does not fade away and it's reserved in heaven eternally for me. I love that part, but what is that inheritance? Can you imagine if a lawyer came and said, you've inherited stuff. What is it? Can't tell you, but it's stuff. I want to know what it is. I want to know. So, so understand, there, there's two passages that you should be aware of speaking of what the inheritance is. The first passage is actually found all the way back in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, in chapter 34. In Exodus chapter 34, Moses wants to see the glory of God, and, and it, it makes a statement in Exodus 34 after he receives the glory and God tells his name. Verse 8 and 9 is key. We, we kind of read it as an afterthought, so we're so caught up in this majesty of God that we look to 8 and 9 as an afterthought, but it's, it's, it's an it's a exclamation point on everything else. So in Exodus 34, beginning in verse 8, so Moses made haste, bowed his head towards the earth, and worshipped. Then he said, if now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. <laughs> Do you know what? 
here Moses is asking, God, even though we are stiff-necked, even though we are rebellious, even though we are so stubborn, would you, through your grace, pardon our iniquity, pardon our sin, and take us as your inheritance? He's saying, would you, would you take us as your inheritance? Could, could we be the thing that you desired to have? And amazingly, he didn't even have to ask that. God had said, I want you to be my children. Remember what, what, he, what he told Moses, tell Pharaoh, my son, this is my son. I'm, I'm the father. This is my son. They have an inheritance that comes. And it's absolutely incredible to see that we are God's inheritance. Now, in Psalm 16, verse 5 and 6, the next part of that equation is this. Psalm 16, beginning in verse 5, says, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. In other words, God, can I be in your inheritance? And then he says, God, you're my inheritance. You are my portion. You're the portion of my cup and the inheritance of my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in a pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. Do you understand here what David is saying in Psalm 16? He said, God, were your inheritance? God says, yes, yes, you are my inheritance. And God says, oh, but get this, I'm your inheritance. Do you understand the inheritance he's talking about is a relationship. If you've ever wondered what this inheritance is, it's a relationship between us and God and God and us. He says, this, this is us together forever and ever and ever. And Peter goes, Blessed be God, because I can't do anything to do what? To screw up the inheritance. Realize this. You just have to understand this, that if you know of somebody who was very, very wealthy, and they in their will didn't know certain things about you, and all of a sudden they wrote a will and they passed away, and the will is what? It's enforced. Now, now, what happens if you do something really, really bad and the lawyer finds out? Nothing. Because the inheritance is still locked in. Guy died, signed, and it's mine regardless of what you think of me. The amazing thing is when it comes to inheritance that family members have a tendency to think they shouldn't deserve that, they shouldn't deserve that, I should receive it all. But guess what? You can't change it. It is what it is, and you accept it. And this is what here Peter begins to celebrate glory to God, saying, oh, my goodness, blessed be God, because I'm, I'm, I'm holding on to this abundant mercy, the things that I didn't deserve, so I'm not going to try to put on you what I think you should be punished for. I'm receiving the mercy. You can receive the mercy. Why? Because we are not who we used to be. We've been born again. I'm not who I was. I've been born into this glorious new creation, born again to this living hope, this assurance that is constantly transforming me, this assurance is constantly moving me forward because of what? because of this resurrection power that Jesus displayed now becomes mine, that I now am able to do this through a resurrection power, a power that overcomes the dead, the power that overcomes sin. This resurrection power that Jesus displayed on, on you know, resurrection morning is mine to have now. Because of this resurrection, I now have what? My name written in heaven for eternity. Lowell has inherited an eternal relationship with the father as a son. And put your name in there as a son or daughter. This is what Peter said. And he focuses on it. He goes, blessed be God. You understand there's nothing that I could ever do to erase what God has done and I can celebrate it. So when the enemy comes and tries to, to show you how horrible you are, read Matthew 26 and read 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Just read it and go, oh, blessed be God. 
I have this inheritance. I have this hope. I have this power. I have my name written in heaven. And so celebrate that, saints. Celebrate that. Don't let anybody rip you off or tear you down or cause you to doubt. And let that knowledge, that intellectual knowledge, be an expression of awe and wonder and majesty that comes pouring forth from your heart. So that when you read this word, you're like, yes, yes, this is incredible. And when you begin to worship in song, say, yes, you are worthy. Oh my goodness, you are worthy of praise. I love what Peter is doing. Peter is not a defeated disciple. Peter is an amazing apostle. Peter has been redeemed, and he knows it, and he has been restored, and he knows it, and then he's been elevated, and he knows it, and he knows it has nothing to do with him. And it was all God's work, so what do you do? You worship God. God, you are so worthy. I am not, but you are so worthy. Let that be our celebration, not just as we leave here, but into this next week and next week and next week and just let this anchor in, not just to your head, but anchor into your heart and celebration. This is why we worship, because I can't undo what he's done. And I am forever, 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 forever his. Amen? Amen. Oh, Father, we are so grateful for this word, for your heart, for Peter. So grateful for what you made Peter into. You've always known he would be this, Lord. You've always known. That's why, Jesus, you would call him the rock, the stone. You knew that he would be yours, and that he would be great in your kingdom, and that he would teach us a desperate, desperate truth that we need to receive to worship fully who you are and how you work. And so, God, we worship you. We thank you. We celebrate who you are. We become aware of your incomprehensible greatness We've come aware of your immeasurable majesty. And like the creatures in heaven, we, we are in awe. Like Isaiah, when he witnessed you, he was in awe. We see an aspect of who you are in this passage. And Father, we are in awe. Our lives are going to be the testimony of whether we receive this or not. Today is going to be a testimony of whether I believe this or not. And so, Father, by your spirit, anchor it in our hearts, anchor it in our minds, anchor it in our spirit, which are yours, that nothing can distract us from this truth. Nothing can take it away. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said, amen. amen.